Can you turn with me in your Bible to Matthew chapter 6? The Gospel of Matthew chapter 6. We're making our way through the, well, through the Gospel of Matthew, but right now through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. I'm going to read both last week's passage and the passage that will be covered for a few sermons to come in the future, and we'll just be focusing on really the connecting point between these two texts. So this will be Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19, going all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 34. And again, please hear this public reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness." No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow." For tomorrow will be anxious about itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we live in a world that is an anxious world. My guess is everybody in this room, in some way or another, has or does struggle with anxiety and worry, perhaps some even to a high degree. Lord, it can be very difficult to know how to fight this particular sin, how to get victory over it. And God, I pray that even now and over these next few weeks as we discuss the issue of anxiety and worry, that you would show us a way forward through forgiveness and transformation in your gospel and the promises that you offer in this passage. I pray that you would give us great freedom in our battle against anxiety. It's a battle that Most of us probably fight every day, if not every week of our lives, and I do pray, God, that you would show us the freedom and joy and the peace of trusting you and not having sinful worry or anxiety control or paralyze us. So I pray that you would do that now in Jesus' name, amen.
So again, we're going to spend a few Sundays on the issue of anxiety, so I'm not going to go too far into this text on anxiety today. Uh, I'm going to be actually looking at a number of different passages to kind of shed, to, to shed light on this issue and to try to gain some wisdom from Scripture. And a major connecting point for me is in verse 25. I know different translations translate this word differently. It's not the usual word in Greek for therefore, but it's a similar word. It means uh, because of these things I say to you, or therefore I say to you, or something along those lines. In other words, in light of what I just said, therefore, do not be anxious. And so I want to build off of the last two Sundays' sermons to try to understand better how verses 19 through 24 help us learn not to worry. Now, before I get too far into the sermon, uh, I was talking to Jerry about this, uh, I guess, in the past week, and Jerry just said, you know, it's interesting, we were talking, it's interesting how much time Jesus spends in this sermon on the issue of anxiety. I mean, you look around, He deals with some important issues. Uh, he deals with divorce and remarriage and oaths and retaliation and loving your enemies and lust and anger and His fulfilling of the law and the Beatitudes and giving and fasting and praying and all kinds of important things. But Jesus spends a lot of time, given the length of this sermon, to repeat this command over and over, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious. And then again, do not be anxious, O you of little faith. So the first thing, and I hope this doesn't make you all want to cower in fear and run out of the room when I say this, we need to face this squarely as we think about this. The kind of anxiety, I'm going to distinguish something. There's a kind, of, a kind of godly care or concern, and there's a kind of sinful anxiety. But, there, but this needs to be clearly understood in today's culture the kind of anxiety that comes not from trusting God, the kind of anxiety that can dominate our life, that can paralyze us, that can absolutely freeze us up, it can make us stay up at night and wake up in the morning, absolutely controlled by thoughts of fear of what could happen or might happen or has happened. Jesus calls this sin. He doesn't just say it's a personal preference thing or it'd be nice if we could get ahead. He says, no, it's a command. Just like the Bible says, do not murder. Do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie. Jesus says, do not worry. But let's stop for a second. What a wonderful God we serve that makes that part of His law. Think about it. His command is, I want you, Christian, to be free from paralyzing sinful anxiety and fear. That is not a cruel God. That is a God who wants what is best for us. That is a God who cares for us. That is a God who wants to set us free from the kinds of mental traps we can get in when we allow anxiety to get the best of us. Now, why is worry a sin? Well, obviously, because Jesus commanded us not to do it. That's simple and obvious. But why underneath the surface is it sinful to be paralyzed by anxiety? Now, listen to this. Worry fundamentally, is distrusting God's promises regarding His goodness, sovereignty, and love for His own. Worry, fundamentally, is distrusting God's promises regarding His goodness, His sovereignty, and His love deep down. And let me, let me add something that I, 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 I'm, we've all read the sermon, I mean, probably most of us have read the Sermon on the Mount numerous times in our lives. I had not spent much time thinking about the, the connecting word in verse 25. Let me return to this word. Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. 
That word, therefore, or because of this, I tell you, do not be anxious. That, that connecting word has really got me this last couple of weeks, these last couple of weeks. It connects especially to verses 19 to 24. And I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. R.C. Sproul, who went to heaven in 2017, R.C. said in his commentary on Matthew, quote, when I was a young man, he was, I think he was 17 or so at this time, still in high school, when I was a young man, I watched my father die an inch at a time. He had four serious strokes. This is just in a couple of year period. His father had four strokes, which completely incapacitated him. He sat in a chair for the last three years of his life, unable to work or to derive any income whatsoever. And R.C. says, I can still remember my father saying to me in a thick voice because of the paralysis from the strokes, take no thought for tomorrow what you should eat, what you should drink, or what you should put on. And Sproul says, my father lived and died by this text. So here he is sitting in that recliner essentially in the living room, R.C. would have to go in there and to take him to dinner, R.C. would wrap his arms around his shoulders and lift his dad up from the, from the recliner. He would drag his feet across the floor to the kitchen table and sit his father down. And then at dinner, after dinner time, he'd pick his father back up. And as a 16, 17-year-old, he would drag his father to bed and put his father down to sleep. And yet his father, through a deep slur after four different strokes, kept saying this verse, do not be worried about tomorrow. Don't be worried about what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall wear. And R.C. said it actually bothered him that his father was… R.C. was not a Christian yet. It bothered him that his father was trusting the Lord so strongly in that way. I'm just going to add as an aside here. One of these nights, R.C., his father was, was asking him to take him to bed. And when R.C. picked up his father, he stopped and asked him to put him down at, at, at the couch on the way to the bedroom. So R.C. put his father down at the couch, and his father said to him, R.C., through the slurred voice, he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And R.C. said, I said back to my dad a word of rebuke in that moment. He said, it's one of the greatest regrets I've ever said in my entire life. He said, in my unbelief, I looked at my dad. I said, Dad, don't say that. And he said, I took my dad to bed that night. Those turned out to be the very last words his dad ever spoke. His dad died later that evening in the bedroom. And R.C. said, he died trusting and honoring the Lord while he said, I, as an unbeliever, was not yet trusting the Lord and therefore rebuked my dad at the very moment he was offering me the legacy of his faith in Christ, that he had finished the race well. So God took care of his father and carried him all the way to the end. He was right not to worry in that time. So let me say a word about good worry. You say there's no such thing as good worry. Well, let me just say that the New Testament has a couple of words that are used for worry. And these are the words Jesus says, do not worry. That same Greek word will sometimes be used positively as not a bad thing. So we've got to distinguish godly care and concern from ungodly worry. Because the same word can be used for both in the Greek New Testament. Let me give you a few examples. No need to turn to these. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. Paul, after mentioning all of his physical suffering, the beatings and the shipwrecks, he then says in verse 28, apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. In other words, Paul had a holy care and concern for the spiritual health of the Philippians and the Thessalonians and the Galatians and on and on. That burdened him. It compelled him to pray. It compelled him to write letters. It compelled him to teach Scripture. It compelled him at times to rebuke and to encourage. 
But that anxiety or that care for the churches was a godly thing. We should have a godly care that pushes us towards holiness and towards prayer. In 1 Corinthians 12, 25, he speaks of the body of Christ, local church. He says that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same Greek word worry or care for one another. So when we care for or concern for one another, that is not unholy. That is a godly kind of concern. And the last example, Philippians 2.20, for Paul says of Timothy, his protege, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned, the Greek word is worried, genuinely concerned for your welfare. And so here, Timothy's genuine godly concern for others is a godly kind of care. And we should, of course, have that kind of concern for others. So where does sinful anxiety come from? Let's look at the logic here from Jesus. Verses 19 to 24, last week's sermon. Where does worry come from? It comes from having our treasure in the wrong place. That's the, this is the insight that was newer to me with the Sermon on the Mount in, in recent weeks. This insight was newer to me. Having read this before, I had not seen the connection here. So Jesus says, if you store up treasures on earth, you're going to be worried, and rightly so, because treasures on earth cannot be kept safe forever. Treasures on earth, moth and rust destroy them. Thieves break in and steal. If my treasure, if my values, if my ultimate priorities are earthly things, if I'm storing up treasures on earth, there's always something to fear. Because guess what? Earthly treasures are not guaranteed to last, and one day we will leave them all behind. So, of course, if my heart is caught up treasuring things up, storing things up in this world, I'm going to be racked with worry because my life is caught up in my possessions. And Jesus says, no, our life should not be caught up in the abundance of our possessions. In verse 22 and 23, if our eye is singularly devoted to the wrong object and our eye is fixed on worldly circumstances, if that's where our hope is, then our fear and anxiety will be off the chart. I mean, think about this. If your eye is fixed on academic achievement, which again is a good thing, nothing wrong with that, but if your eye is fixed, that's where, that, that's where your value is, that's what you are treasuring, is earthly academic achievement, then guess what you're going to feel the night before every exam and test? Not a godly concern that you work hard and do well, which is legitimate. What are you going to feel? You're going to feel like an identity crisis is happening. What if I don't do as well tomorrow as I did last time? What if my GPA goes down? What if I'm no longer valedictorian? What if I'm no longer 4.0? Or what if I no longer have this scholarship? What if people find out this fear of, what if, what if I'm not seen as, as intelligent as I, as I wanted to be or whatever? If my eye is fixed on that object, darkness comes and anxiety will come with it. If you invest all that you have and all that you are in an earthly relationship, whether it's with a spouse or with children or with relatives or whoever, if that is my be-all, end-all, then my goodness, there will be deep concern to the point of sinful worry that will accompany those things. And then look at verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If money is my God, there is going to be worry attached to that. But if God is my God, I can trust Him to take care of my needs physically. I can trust Him not to be lazy. You work, you do what you can, but ultimately we trust ourselves into God's caring hands, and He is our ultimate goal, and in which case we trust Him and we no longer have the same degree of worry as we may have in the past. 
going to read a quote. I hope this doesn't depress you. From David Pallison. It's a good way to start a quote, isn't it? So David Pallison is a Christian counselor. He's got a great book, uh, Seeing with New Eyes, a collection of essays. He also went to heaven not that long ago. And uh, li- listen to, this is the de- de- depressing part of the page, and then listen to what he says. He says, we've got plenty of good reasons to worry. Let's say you have that after-school job and can put some money in your pocket. You still worry. How will I pay for college? What kind of part-time job or student loan will I need? If you're in college or just graduating, you worry. Will I get a decent job? What if there's no work? When you get that real job, the career job, you think, will I ever have enough money for a house? How are we going to afford having kids? There are always more reasons to worry. Does all this sound familiar? Even when I have enough money to pay all the bills, I leave my bill-paying sessions with a vague anxiety. Does that feel familiar? Uh, After I've paid everything, there's not much money left. Low-grade worry sneaks in. In my budget, it's always either the dentist or the auto mechanic or something like that. It was never in my budget, but it easily gets onto my worry list. Then you get older, and you start doing financial planning for retirement, which you should have been doing 20 years ago, he says. Another worry. And he says, the planners show you you diagrams of your uh, projected assets. The amount goes up for a little while, and then it tanks uh, uh, a nosedive around age 75. He said, there's, there's your 401k, the stock market. What if it crashes? There's always something to worry about. What are the one or two or six things that you most prominently worry about? He gives some suggestions. Do I have any real friends? What if I don't make the team? What if I forget my lines in the play? What if someone else gets picked for that committee? Will I ever find a spouse? If I do find one, will he or she be faithful? Am I even worth marrying? Will I be able to have kids? If I have kids, how will they turn out? Then he says this, A worrier is storing treasure in the wrong place. If what you most value can be taken away or destroyed, then you set yourself up for anxiety. Whether it be money, health, a particular friendship, the dream of marriage, success in sports or business, or how your children turn out, you're building your house on sand. Even if you feel good or everything's going your way, you're building your house on sand. Your treasure is vulnerable. And whenever, that is, whenever what is precious to you is threatened, you'll be gripped with fear. Where do you store your treasure? In things that are uncertain or things that are certain. And then you'll be encouraged to know the next section of the, of the chapter. He says, you may have good reasons to worry, but you have far better reasons to trust in God's goodness. You have far better reasons to trust in God's goodness. So, a few things here from various passages of Scripture. If you want, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, this is the parable of the soils. I just want to zero in on a couple of things in this text. Matthew 13, in the parable of the soils, this is when Jesus explains the meaning. I'm just going to focus on two, the rocky soil and the thorny soil. Matthew 13 verse 20. Jesus says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, just stop there. This person falls away because of the test of adversity. When persecution or tribulation arises on account of their 
faith in Christ, the, the, the Word, when that happens, when it, when it gets hard to be a Christian, this person doesn't have deep roots, and so what happens? Before any real fruit is produced, they shrivel up and their faith, their apparent faith, what looked like faith, shrivels up and dies. They were not truly believers in Christ. They fail the test of adversity, the, the test of hard times. Now, look at this next one, verse 22. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares, this is the Greek word, worries, but the, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Now, now do you see here? It seems like perhaps this is a test not so much of adversity, but the test of prosperity. Do you see the difference? One person, their faith in Christ shrivels up and dies because it's hard to be a Christian. It's hard. People say things about you. They look at you funny. They, they don't like your views. They think you're narrow-minded and on and on. It's hard to be a Christian. And so, it's too much, too much work. I leave, I'm leaving Jesus behind. That's the test of adversity. But here, Jesus says, how about the test of prosperity? What about when money comes your way, finances come your way, things are going well, and you become deceived by riches? And by all the worries and cares of this life, you've got an abundance of things, perhaps. The test of it, of prosperity, all things are going your way circumstantially, and what do you, what do you see is happening? Those very prosperous things begin to creep in like thorns, and they're entangled in the roots, and suddenly the, the thorns begin to wrap around this budding plant before it can produce fruit, and it chokes it, and what seemed promising never bears any fruit. The test of prosperity, it is not hard for our heart to be cut. He, listen. You know, Jesus doesn't say here, prostitution chokes the word. He doesn't say some drug habit or alcoholism chokes the word. Those are real threats as well. What does he say? He says something far more common, far more just every day. What does he say? He says, the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So we must beware because the things of this world and the anxieties of this world can actually destroy apparent faith in Christ. It can actually lead us away from Jesus. Now, turn with me to, to Luke, a couple books to your right, Luke chapter 10, a well-known text. I love this little scene here, this little snapshot of Mary and Martha and their, their brother Lazarus, of course. Luke gives us this unique little glimpse into this moment when they have Jesus over, Luke, the very end of Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. Luke 10, verses, verse 38. A woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to His teaching. But Martha was, now listen, distracted with much serving. And she went up to Him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion which will not be taken away from her. Now, you see here, anxiety can distract us from Jesus. This does not mean Martha's not a believer. We have every reason to believe Martha and Mary and Lazarus were all believers. This is simply a distraction that any Christian can struggle with, with anxiety. Her heart was so caught up in these momentary things that she was 
taken away from her fellowship with the Lord, whereas her sister sits at Jesus' feet, and she has chosen the better thing. She, she has chosen the superior thing in that moment. So let me ask you, as a point of application, what are cares, concerns, and anxieties that this week have been getting the best of you and I? So I want you to think individually. What are the things, the top issues this week that have been distracting you from the Lord? Things that have not been driving you to the Lord, things that have been distracting you and driving you from the Lord. Certain concerns, certain thoughts, certain cares, certain questions about certain things going on in your life now or in the future that you just don't know, unknowns. You're unsettled by them, and they get in your mind, and it's, you know, when your mind's in neutral, maybe you're driving, maybe you're walking, maybe you're whatever you may be doing, your mind's in neutral, and what? You go back to these things. And you're asking questions about these things. And what's going to happen? And what if this happens? And what if that happens? And oh man, this would be terrible. And what are those things that are beginning to drive us away from the Lord? And what are areas and things that we need to bring to the Lord in prayer so that we, be not, that we would be not distracted? Now, let me mention here. Let's turn to, I know this is a familiar couple of texts. I'm going to get you to flip several more times. So turn with me near the back of your New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5, and then we're going to go to a very familiar text in Philippians 4, but I love these texts. 1 Peter 5, I'm going to start back in verse 5. It's a wonderful passage on anxiety. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse 5, "'Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you.'" Now, again, this is not meant to beat people up. I just want you to know this. This is important. Did you know that being anxious is accompanied by arrogance? That's in this text. Don't be arrogant. Look at verse 6. Instead, one more time, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. How do you show that humility? By, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. It may not sound like arrogance, but the desire to, to, to carry the weight on our own. You get what I'm saying? The desire to try to control circumstances to get the result that I want, right? Whether I'm manipulating the circumstances or worried about the circumstances, me trying to run the show with my preferences is, it's arrogance. We all do it. We've all done it. But that is a form of arrogance. It is trusting in myself that I know what's best, and it's got to be my way or the highway. And it leads to other kinds of sin and how we treat people. We objectify. We, we treat people as objects to get our will done, right? We, just, we, we, we use our words in such a way to manipulate people to get them to do what we want so we can control the outcome. That's how we sinfully fight anxiety, right? That's what happens in this world. So how do, we, how do we fight that arrogant way of trying to have it my way done? It's, I've got to have control. It's got to be my preferences. How do we win that battle? The answer is we humble ourselves. We say, it doesn't have to be my preference. And what do we do? We go to the Lord, and in prayer, we cast our anxieties on Him. I think it's the same Greek word that's used to describe them casting their robes before Jesus when He comes on the Palm Sunday on the donkey. They cast their, their, their garments on top of the donkey and on the, on the ground. They cast them. Same word, I believe. 
This word here, take your anxiety and throw it onto the, onto the Lord's shoulders. Say, Lord, I'm not strong enough to carry this worry. I can't control the outcome. You are sovereign. You are good. And this verse says, you care for me. Lord, help me believe that. Because my anxiety says, if it doesn't go the way I want, then there's some horrible result. But Lord, you are good. You are sovereign. You are in control. God, don't let, it be, don't let me arrogantly try to manipulate my way. Help me to pray, to lay the matter before you, and to cast my concern into your presence, to throw it onto your shoulders. And then, God, give me the grace to trust that what you in your sovereign providence bring about is what is going to be good for me, even if it's hard, even if it's not what I wanted, even if it's not what I would have chosen. Here's what we know. No matter what God chooses for us, because He cares for us, whatever He brings about is going to make us more like Jesus. If it's hard, it's going to make us more like Jesus. If we get our way, the Lord will use that to make us more like Christ. But if He does not give us the thing we desperately feel like we have to have, the Lord is going to shape us. I mean, sometimes the Lord takes something out of our hand, and there's, I've heard it said there's two ways the Lord can take something out of our hand. You know what I mean by that. Something we want, right, that we're worried about. I, I, I have to have this, Lord. Do you really have to have that? Sometimes there's two ways the Lord can take something out of our hand. One is we open our hand in prayer and we say, Lord, I would love to have this, but Lord, I trust that your will is better and let your will be done. So the hand is open, and if the Lord takes it, there's no pain. I mean, no additional pain, right? The Lord takes it, and you, you learn to trust Him. Even if there's tears, we learn to trust. But my goodness, we've all done this, haven't we? Haven't we all had a time where we're not letting go? You ever had that? You're holding on to something and every one of your fingers is just of your heart is clenched on this thing. And you're saying, Lord, I don't care about your will. I have to have this. And then in that case, when the Lord removes it, it's a whole lot more pain involved as the Lord pries it from us. And we need to humble ourselves and say, listen, underneath anxiety, we're doubting something. We're either doubting that God is good. We're either doubting that God is in control. Or we are doubting that God cares for us and loves us. Right? I mean, imagine what our worry would become if we actually believed this. God is real. He's in control. He cares for you, and He's shown it positively by giving His Son for you. And if that is true, we know that God is not ultimately out to get us. Even if He ordains pain in our life, He's doing it the way a surgeon brings about pain, not a murderer right? There's, there's different ways you can use a knife on someone, right? There's a scalpel, which is a pain-inducing instrument, which can be used in the hands of a master surgeon that can create great pain in our life. But guess what? A surgeon can save you by hurting you, right? The goal is not the hurting. The goal is to use the scalpel to remove what is deadly and to get that away so that we can live. And God may, in His goodness, take away something that we want to prove to us that He is all we actually need. And the Lord cares. He, he is good. Turn to the left to Philippians 4, one of the best-known texts probably in the whole Bible on anxiety, Philippians chapter 4. And if, if you've heard this verse a thousand times, please don't tune it out right now, okay? Please hear what this text has to say because I think it is very significant. Look at verse 6. I'm going to read through verse 9. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, 
Let your requests be made known to, the, to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to give you a sneak preview for Thursday night. I believe Jerry is going to tell us about some peace that he experienced laying on a football field when he was 17. And he was unable to move his arms and legs all of a sudden. And in his words, I won't spoil everything, but the Lord gave him an amazing peace that did not match with human understanding. It transcended human understanding. But the Lord poured that out in that moment of need. Verse 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, when you put that text together, it's amazing. Follow this real quick here. So, when anxiety springs up, and it's, it's going to, this week, it's going to spring up. Unexpectedly, some circumstance is going to create the temptation to be anxious in all of us this week. I just guarantee it, right? And when that, when that comes, when that temptation comes, we need to identify it. We cannot excuse it. Oh, it's just a personality quirk. No, no, no. We need to deal with it for what it is. It is sin. It is a distrust in God. We need to deal with that directly. And then we need to go to battle. You know what we do? We lay it out before the Lord. We, we tell the Lord about our, our trouble. We thank God for His grace. And we're told that the peace of God will be with us. But then He doesn't stop. Paul says, then he, we need to think about, think about whatever is true. We need to think about these things and the God of peace will be with us. So prayer and right thinking. God, humble prayer and right thinking go together so that the peace of God is with us and the God of peace is with us. That's all sandwiched together. So what do we do? We pour out our heart to God. Tell the Lord your doubts. Tell Him your struggles. Tell Him your fears. I often say, turn your temptation to anxiety into prayer. Turn the temptation into prayer. Just voice it to God. He knows, right? Just Psalm 139, before a word is on my lips, you know it completely, O Lord. Lord, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but Lord, I need to tell you this. Lord, I am struggling right now. I am struggling. I'm doubting your goodness right now. Right now, this circumstance does not seem good. Lord, help me to trust you. And we plead that before the Lord. And then we pour truth into our minds. We think about whatever is true and honorable and just. And when we think about these things, the God of peace will be with us. The world says the way you get peace is distracting yourself from reality. This is why people drink too much oftentimes. Just, I'm sick of my life. My life is a burden. I want to escape. And so I'm going to take this, this pill or drink this drink so that I can get my mind off of reality. I'll, I'll obtain some kind of pseudo peace. Scripture is just the opposite. It says if you want peace, the reason you don't have it is because you and I are not seeing reality clearly enough. See the difference? False peace is distracting you from reality. Godly peace is, no, you need to see reality more clearly through the lens of God's Word. And when you really see God's character and His goodness and His trustworthiness, again, most clearly in giving His Son, you will be able to say, not just as a mantra, but for, from your heart, to be able to say, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us, what? All that we need, all things God will graciously give to us. Take you to one last passage. We're right next to it. Colossians chapter 3. Just flip over to your right. Read the first few verses. 
Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. See, at the bottom of anxiety, very often, is idolatry. You know why worry happens? Normally speaking, I want something, and I'm putting that thing in God's place in my life. Covetousness, desiring things, is idolatry. So if I'm worried about things, what's happening? I am putting that thing, that relationship, that promotion, my job or career or my family or the success of my children or whatever it is, I'm putting that thing in the throne of my life and I am serving it. But I can't serve two masters. And if I'm serving that as my master, there is going to be anxiety in my life. So at the root of everything, we've got to make sure Christ is central in our affections. We set our mind on heavenly things, things above, not on things on the earth because those things will drag us down and we will not be able to escape. The last thing I'll say is I want to read an excerpt from a letter written by William Tyndale. I've mentioned him before. William Tyndale uh, was killed for translating the Bible into English, believe it or not, uh, hundreds of years ago. And he spent the last year and a half of his life in prison after he'd been in jail for about half a year, uh, the winter was approaching and it was getting cold when he was alone in this prison cell. And uh, I want to read a, a section of what he wrote. And I want you to hear his priorities. He cares about his physical needs, but you'll see where his priorities lie. Listen to this as he writes from a cold, dark, lonely cell awaiting eventual execution where they would strangle him and then burn him at the stake. Here's what Tyndale wrote. I, he's speaking to the person in charge of the prison, I believe is who he's speaking to here. He says, I beg your lordship that if I am to remain here through the winter, you will request the commissary to have the kindness to send me from the goods of mine, which he has, a warmer cap. For I suffer greatly from cold on my, in my head and am afflicted by a perpetual catarrh, illness he had, which is much increased in this cell. A warmer coat also, for this which I have is very thin, a piece of cloth, too, to patch my leggings. My overcoat is worn out. My shirts are also worn out. He has a woolen shirt if he will be good enough to send it. I have also with him uh, leggings of a thicker cloth to put on above. He also has a warmer nightcap. And I ask to be allowed to have a lamp in the evening. It is indeed wearisome sitting alone in the dark. Now, now listen to this. In that context, imagine these next words. He says, but most of all, but most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary that he will kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary, that I may pass the time in that study. In return, may you obtain what you most desire, so only that it be for the salvation of your soul. But if in any other decision, but if any other decision has been made concerning me to be carried out before winter, I will be patient, abiding the will of God. To the glory of the grace of my Lord Jesus Christ, whose spirit I pray may ever direct your heart. Amen. W. Tyndale.
What's amazing about that is, of course, he cares about his physical needs. Jesus isn't saying we ignore those things. But what's amazing is he says, most of all, what I want is a lamp and a Hebrew Bible, a Hebrew grammar, a Hebrew dictionary so I can pass my time studying and perhaps even translating God's Word. And we have no idea whether those things were granted. We don't have access to that information, whether he actually did, but he did stay the winter, and then he was killed a year later. But you see, he trusted himself to God's will no matter what the outcome would be, and the Lord has delivered him safely into his heavenly kingdom. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, we, our goal is not just to be beaten up over our anxieties. We do want to face them for what they are. We don't want to ignore them. We don't want to excuse them, although often we, we, we tend to want to do that. God, I pray that you would show us that anxiety that truly distrusts you and hopes in the things of this world is sin. It is a sin rooted in idolatry. And God, I pray that you would show us how serious that is. But God, I pray that you would graciously show us how much you care for people who struggle with anxiety and worry like all of us do. We thank you that there is freedom offered in the gospel from anxiety. The only ultimate thing we have to worry about, which is eternal punishment in hell for our sin, is something we no longer have to fear or face because of the finished work of Jesus. We know now that no matter what difficulties come our way, that you will work them all to make us more into the image of Jesus. Help us, God, to fix our mind and our heart on Christ, to treasure things in heaven, not on earth. And I pray as we do so, whether the sunny days or the the rainy and dark days come, I pray, God, that we would see all of it as a way to become more like Christ. And even with the ultimate trial of death itself, that we would see and say with Paul, to live as Christ and to die is gain because it is more Christ. So God, I pray that you would work that in us and help us to trust you. And when we struggle and fail, please forgive us and give us the grace to get back on our feet and to learn again to cast our anxieties on you because you care for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.